as I was preparing this message, I'm more, I guess, traditionalist. I like to have, okay, you got to have a text, and then you go through that text. And I really just did not fill a text. Um, But we are going to be talking out of the book of Esther. If you want to have your Bible or device to that book, we're going to be staying in that book for quite some time. And the message is simple. When you look at the book of Esther, you'll notice that God is not mentioned. Prayer is not mentioned. Jehovah, Adonai, nothing of God is mentioned in the book of Esther. Song of Solomon is that way as well. But maybe if you look hard enough, you can find an ex, um, a, um, acrostic of God's Hebrew name in Esther chapter 5 and verse 4. But other than that, God is not mentioned. So why would we have such a book in the Bible? Well, it's because even though God is hidden, he's not hiding. And so if I had to title in the message tonight, it's he may be hidden, but he is not hiding. The author is unknown, though some believe Mordecai was the author. Some scholars believe the book was written in such a way to not mention God so it can be appropriate for Persian record without offending Gentile authorities. Thus, there's no mention of God. There's no mention of prayer. The setting is around 482 B.C., the third year of King Ahasuerus' reign. Ahasuerus, at this point in history, is the world leader. And that's why the writer talks about his 127 providences. From Pakistan to North Africa, this man was in charge. He was the dominant in the world. For the Jews, this book was necessary to be written that they would know the origins of Purim, a feast that they celebrate God's deliverance, which we'll look at in just a second. But for us, the book is written for our learning that we, through patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. And that hope being this, that though he is hidden, he's not hiding from his people. Though his people may not fully embrace his precepts and promises, he is transcendent and he is in complete control. God is God and there is none like him. So before we launch into this, I kind of have to qualify what it means for when I say God is hidden and versus hiding. So when I refer to God being hidden, I refer to the judgments and the ways of God. Romans chapter 11, verses 33 and 34. Scripture says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who have known the mind of the Lord or who hath been his counselor? So Paul, after he's given this dissertation about the Jews and the Gentiles, talking about wild olive branches and the natural branches, he goes into this praise of God that no one can really understand the mind of God. No one can go and say, well, God, let me give you some advice here. Who have known the mind of the Lord or who have been his counselor? Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 28 tells us, has thou not known, has thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary. And there is no searching of his understanding. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You remember when God was talking to Job, and Job was hurling his arguments to God, and God came out of the whirlwind, and he said, his first question to Job was, who is this that darkens my counsel? Job, you think you have the universe all fixed up, and you think you have a logical argument. Well, let me question you out of creation, but God's question to him is, who is this that darkens my counsel? So since God's ways are higher than our, our ways, and his thoughts higher than our thoughts, 
His work may be hidden from our understanding and comprehension, but nonetheless, he is still at work. God is not hiding, taking an inactive role with the affairs of men. That's called deism, where God just winds up the universe and steps back and let everything go as, as it goes. But he is very involved. The Bible says he upholds all things by the word of his power. So the world as it is right now is upheld by the word of God. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. So God is not only the creator, he is the sustainer. Though he may be hidden, he is not absent from the events and affairs of man. God's hand may be hidden, but his role is absolute. I find we often claim God is hidden because of our perception of God. How we think God ought to operate. Well, God, if you were a good God, then X, Y, Z. God, if you were just, you should do A, B, and C. Sometimes we claim that God is a very absent help in time of trouble. You read C.S. Lewis, and he's talking about this problem of pain, and he kind of twists that scripture there. Um, But it's not just C.S. Lewis. Maybe some other biblical characters you would be surprised had that same notion there. So let's jump into Esther. Esther chapter 1. Here, the book is opening. We already talked about Ahasuerus and his 127 provinces. So looking at the story, if we place ourselves in the shoes of Mordecai and Esther or Hadassah, her Hebrew name, the events of Shushan are really no big deal. This is what goes on in empires. They rise up. They fall down. Kings get a lot of money, they get drunk, they have a good old time. And this happens throughout history. So if you were to look maybe at Mordecai's newspaper, the Shushan Sundial Times, how would he describe chapter 1? So the king has a lot of territories from prior generations' conquest. Big deal. The king is a proud and boastful man. He makes a really extravagant feast for his officials, all his officials to attend. Now think about this. This is a big, from North Africa to Pakistan, this is a lot of territory. For all these officials to come by, the scripture isn't implying that they all were just there at one time and leaving their post, but it seems to be a rotation of them coming to this feast that Ahasuerus had. And this feast, this party, was bigger, badder than any party that you have held. Some people, you think they're doing it big when they celebrate their birthday for a month. Ahasuerus did it for a half a year. A half a year celebrating, I am the king of the world. I am the world leader. But really no surprise. Continuing on in that paper, the king holds another feast. So he has a half-year feast, and then he says, that wasn't quite enough. I got to have another feast. And he holds this feast for everyone in the palace area for seven days with a bunch of drinking and drunkenness. But the Bible says that none did compel. So they weren't forcing you to go against your uh, religion, but they were drinking, they were drunking. And really, there's nothing new under the sun, if I could borrow the words from Solomon. The king commands Queen Vashti to come show herself to the people. But she doesn't. And commentators believe that maybe Ahasuerus was wanting the queen to do something uh, promiscuous promiscuous, or just kind of show uh, her beauty in a sensual way. And so I'm sure if some of you had that request, you probably wouldn't come at that request either. But Vastai didn't come. And then they, they come up with this, well, what, what can we do according to law? Because Vastai hasn't come to the king's request, to this banquet, because she's holding her own banquet. Now, look, if you look at that text in chapter 1, what can we do according to law? You notice that there is no really law that Vastai really broke. She just didn't come at the king's uh, request. And really, women weren't supposed to become into that chamber 
with other men. So really, she's doing everything according to law. But the king says, well, let's do something according to law. And then you have this politician, Mimukan. He says, well, Vashti hasn't done wrong to the king only, but also to all the provinces, to all the people in the kingdom. Because if this lady, your wife, King Ahasuerus, is not obeying you, then what's going to happen to us? Maybe Mimukan was having some problems at home. Maybe it was, man, my wife, once she hears this, she's going to be out of line and she's going to think she can do whatever, anything, um, everything. So let's get some laws on the books so that Vashti doesn't come to the king anymore, can't come before the king anymore. She's no longer queen. And let this be published throughout all your provinces that women be obedient to their husbands. So Mordecai looking at this is, well, the king uh, gets rid of a queen and we continue on. <laughs> so it seems that all things are continuing as they were since the beginning of creation. If I can borrow from Peter, it seems that God is hidden from the mundane and the routine. But rest assured that he may be hidden, but he is not hiding. Now, we know, the, we know the story, but imagine, again, in their shoes, you don't know what's going on. When you look at what we call the providence of God, you're always looking at it in a reflective way. When you look back in your life, you can say, well, that was the hand of God. I didn't know it while I was in that situation, but when I look back, I can see that God guided me this way. God avoided me from that accident because I, I just felt an intuition that I ought to go another way. God avoided me from that bad relationship by saying, hey, you don't need to be involved with that man, that lady. You need to go another way. And that's the providence of God, you looking back on that in a reflective manner. So the king gets rid of this, uh, this queen. And by the way, he does this decision in drunkenness, which is not a good time to make decisions. And that's why Proverbs says it's not for kings, O Lemuel, it's not for kings to drink strong drink, nor for brinches of wine. So he gets rid of his queen, and now he's queenless. So you jump to chapter 2. Now, between chapter 1 and chapter 2, there's about a four-year gap. And historians tell us that between this time, Ahasuerus tried to go to Greece and tried to conquer Greece, and all he did was burn some houses down, and he left defeated. So he comes back to his throne, Shushan the palace, and the Bible says that after these things, he remembers what he did. He remembers the decree against Vastai. Now, why do you think the scripture would point it, paint it in that light? I can imagine the king, he's defeated, he's coming home, and, man, Vastai, uh, bring Vastai to me. And notice the scripture doesn't say Mimucan anymore. He's not mentioned anymore, but the, one of his servants say, well, Vashti is put away. She can't come before you anymore because it's according to the law of the Medes and Persians. No man can reverse that law. And so they see this expression on the king's face. And so the king doesn't have to give a decree to find me a queen. The servant suggests, well, let there be virgins brought and let's have a beauty contest in the kingdom. And the most beautiful one that pleases the king, let her be queen instead of Vashti. And so the king says, well, that's a good idea. I like that. So they gather these virgins. Josephus, the historian, tells us may have been about 400 virgins. Now you think about this. 400 virgins out of this large kingdom. These had to be some God-blessed, beautiful ladies. And so they're brought to this beauty contest. And it's kind of a forced beauty contest when you look at the Hebrew where it says uh, they were brought. And then it says uh, Esther was also brought. So it's Kind of like, hey, you're going to be in this, involved in this contest whether you like it or not. So Esther chapter 2 and verse 10. It says, Esther had not showed her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had charged her that she should not show it. So Mordecai, her uncle. This is where we find our protagonists of the story. You have Esther and Mordecai. They're captives. They're taken away into this strange land. And here they are. Here is Esther 
forced into this beauty contest. And you would think, well, where is God in this? What glory does God get in this? Rest assured that God may be hidden, but he is not hiding. So we may be left to respond like Mordecai when Esther is taken into this beauty contest. The Bible says in Esther chapter 2 and verse 11 that, And Mordecai walked every day before the court of the women's house to know how Esther did and what should become of her. So here's Mordecai. Hey, can you tell me how Esther's doing? Is she doing all right? Is, have they, has she gone before the king yet? Next day, next day. Now, mind you, the scripture tells us that they had six months to kind of beautify themselves with these ointments, and then another six months to uh, pretty up themselves, so a total of a year. So can you imagine Mordecai just walking every day for a whole year? Hey, I want to see how Esther's doing. How is Esther doing? And that's what you do when you're worried, when you don't understand the hand of God, when you don't know that God is at work in the situation. So you're, you're being anxious, and being anxious is one of those sins that can paralyze us as believers. I know we like to, well, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not anxious, I'm not uh, careful, I'm, I like to, I believe in God and everything, but we get worried sometimes. When you look at the mortgage, and it's the first, and my bank account is, um, doesn't cover that mortgage payment, we kind of get anxious. But what does Paul tell us in Philippians chapter 4? It says, be careful for nothing, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your request be made known unto God. Sometimes we forget about that Thanksgiving part, though. Sometimes we forget about looking back at what God has done for us, how God has provided for us, where we didn't see the hand of God working before, but we realize now that, hey, he may have been hidden, but he's not hiding. So I'm not going to be careful. I'm not going to be anxious, but I'm going to be with prayer, with supplication, and supplication, with thanksgiving, I'm going to make my request known unto God. We don't have to worry about the future because God gives us a future and a hope, and he gives us an expected end. Esther gets favor. Esther gets favor in the sight of this he guy, the keeper of the women's uh, household there. And Ahasuerus, she obtains favor. Out of all these people in the kingdom, she obtains favor, and she is crowned queen in the place of Vashti. So not only does God have his hand in Esther's life, but also in the life of Mordecai. He was an outsider. Remember, he had to go to outside and see how Esther was doing. Scripture tells us that later on now he's in the king's gate, which means he's an official. He's one of those politicians of the king. So he's in the king's gate now. And he gets some inside information. Esther chapter 2, verses 21 through 23. In those days, while Mordecai sat in the king's gate, two of the king's chamberlain, uh, Big Than and Tirish, of those who kept the door were wroth and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. This is nothing new. People are always trying to kill those who are at the top. And so these people are upset. Maybe they're upset with this new queen. Who is this new queen? My, my daughter should have been queen instead of this uh, person who we don't know where they come from. So they're off with the king. And the thing was known unto Mordecai who told it unto Esther the queen. And Esther certified the king thereof in Mordecai's name. And when inquisition was made of the matter, was found out. Therefore, they were both hanging on a tree. And it was written in the book of the Chronicle before the king. So Esther chapter 2 and verse 23. Esther saves the king's life. What does the next verse say? The next verse says that Mordecai, he is arrayed in purple. He's arrayed in gold. He's carried throughout the city. Or maybe he's given a house next to the king. He's given all this honor. No, not quite. Not quite. Because it seems that God is hidden. It seems that God didn't see what Mordecai was doing. It seemed that God was just off in the distance. What does the next verse say? The next verse says that after these things, after this big event happened, did King Ahasuerus promote Haman, the son of Hathor, um, 
sorry, um, Hamadatha, the Agagai, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes that were with him. Mordecai didn't get his promotion. Haman got a promotion. This is the first time we, we read about Haman. Now, who is this Haman guy? Haman is an uh, Agite. He's our antagonist. He's a man of Satan. The first time Haman is mentioned is after the spoiled plot of Bigthan and Tirish. Mordecai had saved the king's life, and the person who gets the promotion, the advancement in life, is this Haman the Agite. So what's the significance of knowing that this guy is an, an Agite? Well, if you search your, your scriptures there, you come across where God had told King Saul back in the day, I want you to destroy all these Amalekites, and I want you to take this king, and I want you to destroy him as well. Don't leave anything. Destroy it. Utterly destroy it. Because when you guys were coming out of Egypt, they didn't show you any mercy. They wanted to come behind you and uh, do you damage. So I want you to revisit them and repay them. And so Saul, he almost obeyed all of God. He killed, you know, the men, the women, the children. But then it was like some of the soldiers, well, let's, this is a good sheep. Let's keep that sheep there. Oh, this is a good oxen. We don't really need to kill that sheep. I mean, God would be pleased with this. And so, and then they, Saul keeps the king. And that's what you usually did when you, you conquered. You let that king just kind of be your pet like, hey, I got this guy. I won. And so Samuel tells him, hey, you've disobeyed God. What is the bleeding of the sheep I hear? What is, what's all this? And Saul comes up with his cues. Well, this is, the, the people did this. It's not me, God, it's the people. He didn't take responsibility for being in that leadership role. When you are in leadership, the responsibility comes on you. You can't place it on someone else. You can't say, well, he, I'm going to point my finger and he did it. It comes back on you. God is going to be holding you accountable. And so we hold Saul accountable. He says, the kingdom is going to be taken away from you. You've disobeyed me. The kingdom is now to another. And so this is where this Agite, this follower of the, the king of Agag, this is where Haman, his roots come from. So Esther chapter 3 and verse 4. Now it came to pass when they spoke daily unto him, him referring to Mordecai, and hearkened not, and he hearkened not unto them that they told Haman whether to see to see whether Mordecai's matters would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. So this is Mordecai. The command was this. Haman is promoted. The king commands, every time Haman comes around, you need to be bowing down. You need to be giving this guy reverence. You need to be doing obeisance to this guy. So everyone's doing this, and except this one guy, Mordecai. He's saying, I'm not bowing to this guy. I'm not giving this guy reverence. And so apparently from Scripture, Haman didn't know this initially. He's going about and he's getting his praise and, oh, yes, I, I like that. I'm, I enjoy that. And as you read the story more, you realize that this guy is just, he's just bursting with this pride. Pride has got his heart gripped where he, he can't even think right. And so the king's servants are talking to Mordecai, Mordecai, their colleague, and why do you transgress the king's commandment? And the conversation is, well, I'm a Jew. So what do you think that conversation was about? I'm a Jew. Okay, well, what does that mean? I'm a Jew. I serve a living God. I don't bow to, I don't bow to this guy. I don't bow to the enemies of the Lord. I'm standing for God. And sometimes in our lives, we have to be able to stand when everyone else is bowing down. Hollywood is telling you, hey, you need to look like this. You need to dress like this. You need to be like this. But we need to be able to take a stand and say, well, I'm I'm not doing that. I'm not bowing to that. I'm not bowing to this Haman. We as apostolics, we need to take that stand. And so they told Haman. And now Haman, he's looking for this Mordecai. Okay, I see him. Let's see if he's going to bow. And so he's, walk, he's going by, probably in this horse, and he notices this Jew does not bow. So scripture tells us that when uh, Haman 
saw that Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence, Haman was full of wrath. And that's what happens when you're filled with pride. That's going to fill you with wrath. You're going to be disgusted. It's, man, that's, that's glory that I deserve. All glory in this earth only belongs to Jesus Christ. There is no, the Bible says that no flesh should glory in his presence. But notice the irony here. Mordecai had commanded Esther not to reveal her race for her protection. Don't reveal who you are, Esther. But Mordecai reveals his race that will bring a plot to destroy all of them. Esther chapter 3 and verse 6, and he thought it scorn. He detested the idea that, you know what, I can just kill this guy Mordecai. But he said, that is just not enough. That is not enough to satisfy my prideful appetite. He thought it scorned to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had showed him the people of Mordecai. Wherefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews that were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, even the people of Mordecai. The question is, what did Haman see? What did they show him? The Bible says that when he had seen the people of Mordecai, what were they doing? Maybe it was their devotion to God. Maybe they were... Hey, we're in this strange land, God, but we still are kind of semi-devoted to you. We're not going to, we may not be walking fully in your law, but we're still walking somewhat in your precepts. Maybe that's what they saw. Maybe that's what Haman saw that, you know what, that's just, I don't like that. And so he sought to destroy all the people of Mordecai, all the Jews. And you've got to remember the history, too. Oh, these are Jews. These are the Jews that killed my great Uh, great-grandfather. These are the Jews whom God ordered to slaughter us. So I'm going to get my revenge back on these Jews. So Haman goes to the king, and he says, King Ahasuerus, I'm basically the second guy in command. There's a people throughout your kingdom that do not obey your laws. They are just a strange people. King, if, if you would, I would like to just exterminate these people. It's not for your profit to have these people. And I'll, I'll pay the guys who are going to exterminate these, these Jews, and they'll bring that into your kingdom. So there's not going to be any tax laws. 375 tons of silver are going to be coming into your, into your kingdom. Let's just get rid of these people. They're not for your profit. So Ahasuerus, he takes off his ring, gives it to Haman. He says, you do whatever you need to do. Haman, you do what's best. You're my second guy in command. I trust you. So what happens? Esther chapter 4 and verse 1. When Mordecai had perceived all that was done, Mordecai, the city, and when Mordecai had perceived all that was done, Mordecai cried with a loud and a bitter cry. Can you imagine Mordecai's cry? God is hidden. Where is God? Why would God allow this? What have I done to deserve this? First Haman gets the promotion that I should have gotten. And now he's out to destroy us. Can you imagine maybe quoting Job? The one who James says is patient. The waters wear the rocks. Thou washest away the things which grow out of the dust of the earth. And thou destroyest the hope of man. That's what Job said to God. Job said something else. He said, behold, I cry out wrong, but I am not heard. I cry aloud, but there is no judgment. Again, he said, thou art become cruel to me. With thy strong hand, thou opposest thyself against me. These are the saints of God. These are the people who Hebrews 11 will call in the hall of faith. What about Psalms? Maybe he quoted the psalmist. Why standest thou afar off, O Lord? Why hidest thyself in times of trouble? This is the same psalmist who is believed who wrote Psalms 46, that God is a very present help in time of trouble. Here the psalmist is saying, why hidest thyself in times of trouble? He said, God is hidden. But no, he may be hidden, but he is not hiding. So Mordecai's cry, he's crying, and then throughout all the providences where this decree is nailed, the decree, the decree is given in haste, and it's nailed, and they're reading this decree like, what, 
What do we do? And they're crying there in sackcloth. The Bible says many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Their cry may be similar to our cry. When you think God is not around, you think God has forgotten you, you think God is, is aloof, you ask those questions. You ask those same questions that Job asked, those same questions that David asked. God, you're hiding yourself. I'm in trouble, and I need you now, but yet you're far away from me. Such statements, you would think that God would just zap these people. These mere statements sound like blasphemy, don't they? But this tells us that God is not afraid of our questions. He's not afraid of our accusations. He's not afraid of intimidated by our troubles. We can cast all that upon him. God is a big God. So though he may not be seen, his hand may not be seen, he is at work. You know, I, I don't know what God has planned. But he's not hiding. He's not disengaged from the situation. So if God is not hiding and not disengaged nor detached, then he's at work. If God is not hiding, not disengaged, not disattached, then he is at work. God's greatest works are often done in void and dark places. Look at the story of creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved. Look at our salvation, the resurrection. It happened early Sunday morning while it was yet dark. God's greatest works are often done in the dark seasons of our life. So even though it may seem that God is hidden, rest assured he's not hiding. God is still doing a work in the midst of that darkness to bring himself glory and honor. Evil men may rise up like Haman, but God is not caught off guard or surprised. God is the one who sets up and he brings down. Nothing happens outside the providence of God. You look at what Joseph said to his brothers, Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20. He said, as, but as for you, ye thought evil against me. But God meant it unto me for good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. Now, look at this. His brothers, they wanted to throw him in a pit. They wanted him to die. That was their intention. But look at the hand of God. Though God may be hidden, he is not hiding. Though, God, though Joseph had to be in a pit and be rejected and be sold into Egypt, under Potiphar and then be rejected again, God was not hiding. He said, you meant it unto evil for me, but God meant it for good. God meant to bring good about it. So God can take evil intentions, the evil will of man, and bring about good in that situation. Because though God may be hidden, he is not hiding. The ultimate will of God cannot be thwarted by man. Proverbs chapter 19 and verse 21 says, There are many devices in a man's heart. Nevertheless, nevertheless, the counsel of the Lord, that shall stand. Nothing can thwart the will of God. Whatever evil men may set out to do against you, God may be hidden, but he is not hiding. The counsel of the Lord, what God said will be ordained, that will be ordained. Esther chapter 4, this is probably highlighted in all your Bibles. Mordecai comes to, or tells Esther the message. Esther says, I haven't been before the king these 30 days, and you want me to go before the king to plead for our people. That's suicide. That's certain death. Mordecai commanded to answer Esther, think not with thyself, that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. This destruction is not just going to be for the Jews around the providence and you escape, but it's going to be for everybody. For thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time. Then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. 
And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Can you see where the writer almost uncensors God there? What is, what is Mordecai talking about where he says, then shall deliverance to the Jews arise from another place? What does Mordecai have in his mind? Maybe he has in his mind the promises of God that to Abraham, hey, your seed is going to be like the stars of the sky. It's going to be like the sand of the seashore. Even though this evil plot may be against us, God is going to have a seed. God is going to have a remnant in this earth. So even though Haman may plot what he will, God is going to have a plan that's going to overthrow that. So what is Mordecai saying? He is inviting Esther. You can be a part of God's ultimate plan. You can be a part of God's will. God has given you this opportunity. This is why maybe you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. What about us coming to the kingdom? Do you think you were saved just to sit in a pew and to keep it warm? Do you think that the gospel was preached to you so that you could just uh, feel good and goosebumps inside? Maybe you were come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Maybe you were given that gospel message so you could sit next to that person in school and say, hey, the Lord can deliver you from sins. The Lord has a way out for you. Maybe God has gifted you with certain gifts and talents and abilities for such a time as this. Not just to sit in a pew, not just to say, well, oh, look at me. I got this gift. I got the tongues of interpretation. Look at me. But it may be for a, such a time as this. God may be hidden, but he is not hiding. He is at work. And the work that he's doing is for his glory. He's not hidden. He's not hiding. He's at work, and he's doing a work for his glory. Look at Esther's answer. Go and gather all the Jews that are present in Shushan and fast ye from me. Neither eat or drink three days night or nights. And I also and my maidens will fast likewise. And so will I go in unto the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. What an answer Esther gave. It reminds me of three leprous men who... They're in this famine, and they're sitting in there. You know what? Why sit we here till we die? You know, if we go into the city, the famine's in the city. We'll die there. If we sit here, well, we're going to die. So, But there, there's a glimmer of hope. We can go into the camp of the Assyrians. And if they kill us, well, we all will just but die. But they may have food there. They may have substance there. And so this is Esther's answer. It's, you know what, we're going to die anyway. This plot is uh, December 13th, we're going to die. But if I can go into the king, there is a glimmer of hope that the king can hold out the scepter to me and give me grace and give me favor like I found in his eyes before. There may be an opportunity where I can be saved and my people be saved. So Esther steps out on that hope. But now this is where... God really shows his hand. You look, at Mordecai, you look at Mordecai and Haman, their little feud they have going on. Esther finds grace in the king's eyes. She goes before the king. She's in the inner court. He holds out the scepter to her. Yes. God may be hidden, but he is not hiding. He's at work, and he's doing a work for his glory. And so now, what is your prediction, uh, Esther? Uh, what's your request? It's going to be given you to the half of the kingdom. What does Esther say? Well, if it pleases you, O king, let you and Haman come to the banquet, which I should pre- shall prepare for you. And so what does, that Haman, what does that do to Haman, this prideful guy? Oh, he's, he's ready to go. He's, yeah, I got invited to this banquet with The king and queen. No one eats with the king. And with the king and queen, man, I am somebody. The king must really like me, and this queen must see it in me as well. So he's he's going to his friends, and he he says, gather around, friends. Gather around, wife. Gather around, children. Let me tell you a story. He says, hey, I got all this wealth. I got all these riches. I got all these children. 
Even Esther the queen invited me to a banquet, and I'm going to be with them tomorrow. He said, but yet all this availeth me not. Nothing, as long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting in the gate. You would think that any one of us, we would be elated. Wow, I get to be in the presence of the king and queen. But because he sees this Mordecai, because he's so poisoned with pride and with arrogance, he just cannot sleep until this guy Mordecai is dealt with. And so Zerif's wife and his friends, they say, well, let's build some gallows. Let's build them 75 feet high. And you can hang Mordecai on them, on those gallows. And so he says, oh, that's a great idea. And so Haman commands the gallows to be made. And he's doing that all night long. So while Haman can't sleep, there's someone else who can't sleep. Because you see, God may be hidden, but he's not hiding. And he is at work to bring about glory for his name. King Ahasuerus, he can't sleep. And so he commands that they bring the records of the chronicles and that they be read before him. And so they're reading these chronicles in hopes that, man, I need to get some sleep. And they come across this story where Mordecai exposes his plot of Bigthan and Tirish. And the king says, wait, 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 wait. After that, you said Haman was promoted, but did we honor that guy Mordecai? And so they look and... No, nothing's been done for him. By this time, it's morning time. Um, so what do they do? You got Haman in the court. And so where's my king? Where's my Haman? And where's my Mordecai? So here's king. And so the, maybe the story kind of went something like this. For the man whom the king delighteth in his honor, let a robe be brought to him that the king has worn, and let a, ha- let a horse be brought unto him that the king has ridden upon with a royal crest upon his head. Then let these be put into the hands of the noblemen of the kings to dress up the man whom the king honoreth. Then let him be led through the city, and let it to be proclaimed, this shall it be done unto the man whom the king honoreth. The king says, okay, Haman, you got a great idea. Make haste. Do it. So Haman has to parade his enemy throughout the street. And Haman thought that this glory and promotion was supposed to be for me. Who would the king delight to honor more than myself? But he has to give it to Mordecai, the Jew. And so they parade him through the streets. And what, and what does he say to him? Thus shall it be done unto whom the man, unto whom the king delighteth to honor. And so they go throughout this in the afternoon, and then after that parade is done, he has to undress him. Mordecai goes back to the king's gate. But Haman, well, he's, he's, a, he's a little disappointed. Um, so he kind of has to, he runs out. The Bible says, Mourning and having his face covered. God's hidden. He's not hiding. And the work that God is doing, he's turning things around. Look at the twist of it. 
where God says, well, Mordecai, you're, seeing the, you're sitting in sackcloth and ashes, but now there's a time to stop mourning. Now there's a time where promotion truly is going to be coming to you. God's hand may be hidden, but it's not hiding. He's at work. He's doing a work for his glory and for his honor. But when we align ourselves with his glory and with his honor, things work out for our good. Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. It says, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. God may be hidden, but he is not hiding. And he is at work to bring about glory to his name and good for you. This promise isn't for everyone, though. It's for those who love God. That's what the scripture says. Haman could testify to that. Well, it's not working out really good for me. Haman was set up by God, and God was able to get glory through him, though he tried to manipulate the counsel of God. The wicked may rise up, but, and seem, it may seem that God is hidden, but know that he is not hidden. He is, um, he is at work. And he's doing a work of glory, and he is doing a work of good. Psalms 37, this is what the psalmist said. He said, I've seen the wicked in great power. I have seen it. I have seen the wicked in great power and spreading himself like a green bay tree. But what happened? Yet he passed away. And lo, he was not. And I sought him, and he could not be found. So God is setting up this man, Haman, setting him up for his glory, setting him up to get glory through Haman, setting him up to glorify his man, Mordecai. And so after this, they go to this banquet, and Zeresh, before they go to this banquet, Zeresh says, his wife, if you had to do this to Mordecai the Jew, then you're not going to prevail against Mordecai, but you're going to surely fall before him. She prophesied his demise. And so Haman goes to this banquet. And more, um, she go, uh, Haman goes to this banquet. And the king asks again, what is your petition? What is your request? It's going to be given you to half of the kingdom. Notice how Esther is such a wordsmith here. What is your petition? She says, my petition is my life. What's your request? It's for my people. We've been sold to be destroyed and to perish, to, to be destroyed, to slain and to be perished. And so the king is like, well, who would do this? Who would do this to you? Says the adversary in this wicked man, Haman, is that God. The king is upset. Why would you take my beautiful queen and try to destroy her? So he runs out into the palace garden. And while he is there, this Haman that got so upset because a Jew went and bowed to him is now bowing before a Jew. Because God may be hidden, but he is not hiding. He is at work to bring about glory to his name and good for his people. He's bowing before this Jew. And so the king comes back and he says, will you force the queen also? Because in Persian law, you couldn't be within seven paces of the queen or any of the king's concubines. And so that was an immediate infraction of Haman. And so he lets, they let known Haman's plans. Hey, you know what? Haman was up all night, and he was building some gallows. And he intended for them to be for Mordecai, who did you good, king, who saved your life, who you just honored. What does the king say? He says, hang him there on. Because God may be hidden. But he is not hiding. He's doing a work for his glory and for your good. Can we stand? Esther chapter 9 and verse 1. Now in the 12th month, that is the month Adar, on the 13th day of the same, when the king's commandment and decree drew near to be put in execution, in the day that the enemies of the Jews hoped to have power, over them, parentheses, 
though, was turned to the contrary, that the Jews had rule over them that hated them. God is a God who can turn situations around. God is a God who is not intimidated by your circumstances. Whether it be a decree that the Medes and Persians, it can't be reversed. God is still at work. He may be hidden, but he is not hiding. God is doing a a great work. So today in your life, it may seem that God is hidden. It seems that there is no trace of the presence of God. Where is God in this situation? The marriage doesn't seem to be getting better. The children are still backslidden. The mortgage is still past due. And I'm still laid off of my job. The book of Esther teaches us that though he may be hidden, he is not hiding. He is at work to do you good. God hasn't distanced himself. Brother Tisdale said it very well. He said God whispers because he's close. He doesn't need to yell. He doesn't need to scream. He's close. And since God is not hiding, he is at work. He's doing a work for his glory. And this glory doesn't always mean pleasure and good for you. It doesn't always mean pleasure and good for you. Sometimes you're going to have to sit in some sackcloth and some ashes. Sometimes the bills are going to be overdue. Sometimes the marriage will go into divorce. Sometimes the children will remain backslidden. But rest assured that God has not distanced himself. God is still in the situation. But he's bringing about glory to himself. Let's come to the altar. We as apostolics, sometimes we, we think that, well, I ought to get good. I always get good. But where does God get glory? Our ultimate goal is to let God get glory in everything. In everything. God gets glory. So with providence, we understand the working of God in a reflective way. No one had imagined that a banished queen would result in a Jewish queen sitting on the throne. But with God, all things are possible. With God, he controls kings. The heart of the king is in the Lord's hand. So tonight, you may be going through a situation. I want you to understand and know that though he may be hidden, you may not see the hand of God. But nonetheless, he is at work. And he is at work to do glory for his name and to do good for you. God is not thinking thoughts of evil toward you, but he's thinking thoughts of peace to do you good. So let's pray. Let's pray to that intent that God is doing good for his people and that God is going to get glory at the end of the day. Whether whether the mortgage is overdue and the house goes into foreclosure, God somehow is going to get glory. If the child may never come home, God is still going to get glory. But God is not interested that anyone should perish. God is not interested that his seed be hungry. The psalmist said, I've never seen the righteous forsaken, nor a seed begging bread. It's amazing how God worked things out for you. It may seem like you're the last straw, but God works it out for his glory. He may be hidden, but he is not hiding. He is at work. Let's pray.